Hey everyone, on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, Lynn Alden is back. We talk about her new book, Broken Money, Why Our Financial System is Failing Us and How We Can Make It Better. To me, it's an instant classic. I think everyone who is studying economics and money in university and college should absolutely read it. If this is an interest to you as an adult, definitely read it as well. I put this book up there with uh, Jeff Booth's book, The Price of Tomorrow, The Sovereign Individual, um, The Bitcoin Standard by Saifedina Moose. It's an absolutely great book. It breaks down the concepts that I think all of us should understand, and it helps you have conviction in your future investment decisions and what you decide to use as your own money. So highly recommend the book. We also chat about things she has recently written about in her free investing newsletter, and the premium one that Nick and I subscribe to. Those newsletters, by the way, are available at lynnalden.com. The free one is amazing. So at a minimum, I would highly suggest throwing your email address on there and getting on her free email um, newsletter on uh, lynnalden.com. You can also follow Lynn Alden on Twitter at lynnaldencontact. And if you are listening to this, and ultimately we do talk about Bitcoin towards the end of it as a form of money, if you're trying to figure out the best place to do that in Canada, we highly recommend Bull Bitcoin. Of all the different exchanges we've looked at, for most people, this breaks down the things that we all need in the best way possible. So they have a bunch of different services. You can buy Bitcoin. It's non-custodial, meaning they're not going to hold on to your Bitcoin. When you buy Bitcoin from Bull Bitcoin, they're going to help you hold it and custody it directly. So buy Bitcoin is a non-custodial exchange. They also have these services where you can pay your bills with Bitcoin. So you can kind of send and receive Bitcoin in probably the easiest ways we've ever seen it. And you can send Bitcoin, they'll change it into Canadian dollars and pay your visa bill and utility bills. So there's payment features and you can wire money to people through Bull Bitcoin. So definitely worth investigating some of those services. And they have some services called Bull Bitcoin Prime. So that involves unlimited transaction volumes. If you're gonna use Bitcoin for your corporate treasury or business payments, you can get dedicated phone support management around those types of services. That's Bull Bitcoin Prime. So maybe for some more institutional grade or business grade kind of solutions. And they have Bitcoin support. So bitcoinsupport.com is a separate URL and that's where they offer um, support services. So if you need someone to walk you through setting up a hardware wallet or a wallet so that you can custody your own money in the form of Bitcoin, they will walk you through those services. So Bull Bitcoin, we are absolutely fans of them. If you go to Rock rockstarbtc.ca, so rockstarbtc.ca, you'll get $20 of free Bitcoin when you uh, sign up for an account and fund the account through that URL. So that's rockstarbtc.ca. That's enough with the intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we are with Lynn Alden. And Lynn, thank you for doing this. The book, your book is like a beast. And I mean that in a positive way. Like this is just, I have so many like dog ears on these pages of this book that I had to start using the bottom of the book. And so then it became rather useless, Lynn, because I was dog earing so many pages. I thought, oh, well, I guess I just have to read the book like multiple times. <laughs> so thank you for the book. I mean, uh, this, I can only imagine how much time you put into this and how serious you take things it shows. Um, so thank you. I mean, that's definitely a book I'll be handing out and re- recommending to people. So really thank you for everything you've done with that. Really appreciate it. I appreciate that. Thank you. And I have questions for you on the book, uh, but I want to jump in on your latest premium report. You had, you had some stuff that I was just reading about, um, and I just want to get your current thoughts on it. So hopefully I throw sure. you some curveballs that gets Lynn Alden thinking, you know, maybe she hadn't thought about something. And I highly sure. doubt that, Lynn, knowing, knowing you, you've analyzed every everything and, uh, you know, 10 times over. So here we go. In the report, you were talking about the treasury and kind of a surprise announcement that the percentage of debt issuance that they recently had was treasury bills and not like longer term debt. So why was that a surprise to, you know, people like myself who are reading that, who maybe don't quite fully understand why was that a surprise? And why is that a sign of fiscal dominance? Can we start there? 
Yeah, sure. So in general, uh, the Treasury tries to maintain a pretty kind of um, static ratio between T-bill issuance and longer duration bond issuance. Um, and they're, the problem now is that they're releasing more into the market than normal. There's just The deficits are unusually large, especially um, outside of a recession or other kind of crisis event. Um, and so there's just kind of like this ongoing quarter by quarter deluge of supply. Um, and the Fed's also doing quantitative tightening. So they are, um, you know, letting, they're, they're selling through mat uh, maturity. They're, they're letting uh, bonds mature off their balance sheet and not reinvesting those proceeds, which is effectively a sale. Um, because the dollar index is strong, there's not a lot of foreign demand at the moment. Uh, that's that's unintuitive to people. But basically, when the dollar is strong, usually um, the foreign sector is not really buying a lot of treasuries. They're often more in, in currency defense mode. Um, and if anything, they're, you know, they're, they're either selling reserve assets or they're, they're more often just holding flat. Um, whereas when the dollar is weaker, they're they're more likely to be in reserve accumulation mode, um, and so they're not really, on average, buying at the current time. And then also banks are, uh, you know, kind of carefully managing their duration. And for the first time in a long time, they had an absolute drop in the you know the number of treasuries they were holding. And so with all of these buyers off the table, and how much supply is coming, uh, that means basically all of it has to be absorbed by the domestic non-bank sector. Um, so insurance companies, pensions, asset managers, households, hedge funds, uh, uh, and these are entities that generally don't have all this extra leverage. For example, the banking system has leverage, the Fed has leverage, uh, but these are these are less flexible balance sheets to absorb all of this. Um, and one of the remaining pools of capital, uh, pools of liquidity available, is the reverse repo facility. That you can kind of consider that like a spillover uh, for like ex excess demand for T bills specifically, not for longer duration, just kind of T bills like cash equivalents with with no counterparty risk. I mean, your counterparty is the Fed, um, and so money markets could easily uh, replace some of their reverse repo exposure with more T bill exposure. So right now, there's you know there's a tr at least a trillion dollars worth of of T bill exposure that could rapidly be um, consumed by the market. Uh, which is not always the case, but that's the case right now. Whereas there's clearly a a more limited demand for longer duration like T notes, T bonds, um, and so rather than just the treasury kind of keeping with their normal cadence and their normal um, split of how they're doing things, they've been very aggressive on the T bill side, um, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it's it's the more expensive part of the curve. Uh, so the treasury has to optimize for a couple things. One of them is trying to minimize expense for the government, um, and yet we have an inverted yield curve, and they're still issuing on excess amounts on the short end. Um, but number two, they're also doing that to not hurt liquidity. Uh, they don't want to draw you know value out of bank reserves. They'd rather kind of pull from this reverse repo facility. Um, and so basically, it just kind of it was like a a bigger than normal jump uh, for what the treasury would do. I think it's one of those things like it's it's a it's just a not something that most people follow. You know, the the quarterly refunding of treasuries is it's usually a boring thing. Um, but this was the probably the first time where a treasury refunding announcement probably moved markets more than a, an FOMC announcement from the Fed, uh, just because there was kind of more of interest there. And in some ways, the treasury has been affecting liquidity conditions as much or more than the Fed lately. And so these these two two forces have been kind of at odds. And so it's interesting that there's another variable there that can, you know, surprise us one way or another quarter by quarter. So then uh, what happens when the reverse repo facility is this reverse repo facility something that's always existed or is this like a new thing in, since quantitative <laughs> easing? And and what happens when the reverse repo facility drains out? Because I think it was I think it was earlier this year it was at like two trillion. And I think it's at like one trillion now. So at that pace, we're like within the next year, and it looks like it drains right out. So is it something that's always existed in the current financial system? And what happens when it, in your opinion, when it just drains out? So in this modern era of balance sheet management, so kind of post GFC, uh, it's been more of a phenomenon, um, and. Um, Basically, when there's been a, a period of excess QA, that's when it's almost like you've filled as much water as can fit in the bucket for the time being. And so that money just starts have to, having to spill somewhere. And so they open the reverse repo facility, it spills into there. Uh, and then when they stop doing QE for a while, it eventually starts training back out of that and back into the broader market. Um, and so we, we did see a little bit of usage of it 
in the prior rounds of QE, you know, QE like one, two, and three. Um, now, what happens when it runs out? Uh, the most destructive period for that is probably the 2019 repo spike. Um, so that was the opposite problem. Right now, there's excess demand for T-bills. Basically, the reverse repo facility represents roughly an extra trillion dollars worth of demand for T-bills um, that money markets you know, would happily buy uh, and just take it out of the reverse repo facility. Um, back in the 2019 period, there was a similar environment of kind of surprisingly big deficits for a non-recession. I mean, nothing like now, but basically mm -hmm. deficits were widening at a time when we were not in a recession yet. Um, and the Fed was doing quantitative tightening like they are now. Um, and out of nowhere, uh, repo rates just blew out. Um, so basically, you know, rates that rates that um, financiers deal with each other overnight just kind of just went like to seven percent, like out of nowhere. And so the Fed basically jumped in with emergency repo activity, not reverse repo, but repo, because uh, at that point the reverse repo was drained, um, and there was this ongoing need to finance the deficits. And you also had a pretty strong dollar environment, so there was not a lot of foreign buying of treasury. So kind of all the same setup happened and it manifested in the reverse repo uh, market getting messy. And the problem there is if that had persisted, uh, it would have spilled over into the treasury market because at that time, especially the kind of the remaining buyer was hedge funds and they were using repo to finance their treasury purchases. Um, and so obviously you can't you can't finance at 7% and then buy you know whatever the T-bill was yielding back then, which was quite low. Um, so they came in, they they stopped doing reverse repo. There are some of us analyzing at the time, like myself, Luke Roman, uh, a handful of analysts, because a lot of people were trying to figure out what was happening. Uh, whereas our argument was that this was basically a T-bill oversupply problem uh, and that the Fed would, even though it seems like a repo problem, mm -hmm. is actually a problem of just too many T-bills relative to other liquidity. And so that the Fed is probably going to come in and have to start QE again. And within weeks, that's what they did. By you know, the repo spike happened in September. By October, they started doing QE, um, and they didn't want to call it QE because they were only buying T bills. They weren't buying longer duration, and they were not doing it for the intent purpose of stimulating the economy. It was just kind of managing liquidity. They were just going back up to a gradually expanding balance sheet again. Uh, so I think we could run into a situation like that where. You know, you kind of hit zero, and maybe you go. You know, you stay at zero for a while as the Fed keeps draining. Uh, but then some weird dislocation happens. Maybe maybe Treasury shoot up hundred basis points one day. Maybe repo rates get weird one day, mm. and then it just kind of it. You know, most unlike a, a bigger crisis, this was one that only really market participants or like financial plumbing analysts were looking at. The average person street was like, what, what are you talking about repo? Like it doesn't it doesn't matter. Um so this was one of those like non-crisis crises. Um and I think basically what happens when the reverse repo ends is you probably get a similar event where one day the Fed just has to be like, oh well we're not gonna reduce the balance sheet anymore. Uh and we're gonna go back up to a period of of slow um balance sheet management. So it kind of makes me think then I guess you also discuss this you know, with deficits at like whatever they're at, 7% of GDP right now. So next year, if rates don't change and next year there is some kind of slowdown, officially a recession in the US or, you know, is called or, or not, um, but there is some economic, uh, economic slowdown, tax receipts are down. There's a potential next year in 2024 for a combination of the repo facility being, the reverse repo facility being drained out and deficits just going up because there's a recession, there's some stimulus required and deficits would like if they're at 7% now and a typical recession, you know, might move them six percentage points, it could go to like double digit, double digit deficits. I'm hesitating to even say it, but double digit deficits and a situation where there's a reverse repo causing like some disjointment in that market. 2024 seems set up for, uh, it's going to be necessary for some brand new liquidity to come into the market almost it's, it almost seems like a certainty. Am I being kind of too, you know, too naive thinking that way? Well, so I, I try to never use the phrase certainty, but I do think that 2024 is probably going to see the end of balance sheet reduction. Um, the reverse repo facility is is one of the uh, metrics that I'm watching pretty closely for that reason. You know, once we start getting down to a few hundred billion, uh, that'll be kind of all eyes on the reverse, reverse, uh, reverse repo facility. Um, and, you know, I think... So the the normal in recent uh, recessions, these have been pretty big recessions. Obviously, COVID was a giant 
kind of weird recession. The 2008 recession was very big. The 2001 recession was smaller, even though it didn't seem like that for U.S. equities, but it was a smaller recession by most metrics. Um, the the six percent increase that people often cite, you know, I would I would probably expect it to be a little bit smaller this time because okay. uh, I wouldn't necessarily expect a 2008 style recession. Uh, I think they're probably going to be tighter with stimulus. Um, this time around. Uh, and unlike in the prior couple of recessions, there's actually a pretty meaningful interest rate reduction that can happen if the Fed decides to cut rates uh, in the face of that. So while you would have weaker tax receipts and you might have some stimulus, you'd also have likely a reduction in, in interest expense by the federal government. And so you probably would have several hundred billion dollars of deficit reduction, but then you also have several hundred billion dollars of increase in deficit. So, but the you know the, the shocking thing is that even at seven percent debt to GDP, if you only have a three percent total uh, deficit increase, you're at ten percent. Um, and and not really. I think what makes this different is that there's really no end to it. It's not like you know this is seven percent temporarily, and then it's you know it, it, it's the the structure the the overall demographic structure is just inherently deficit bigger now, and not having a structural decline in interest rates. Like even if we just go back to a kind of a band between you know one percent and six percent interest rates, let's say we don't just keep going up, but let's just see, we we go in a, in a band now. Um, that's just a a, a bigger in, interest expense world. Um, and so I do think that 2024 is probably going to see uh, changes to the Fed's balance sheet management. And I do think that, you know, while I would he hesitate to guess the size of these, de these deficits, I think they are going to be very persistent and basically just quarter after quarter, just absolutely massive deficits. Um, and that that's going to have increasing effects in the economy. When you say it so factually like that, it just sounds so simple to me. When I say it, I, I feel like I'm freaking out, but you're, you, you say it like, yeah, we're going to have. Absolutely large deficits going forward. It just seems like a nice factual statement. And I'm thinking, holy shit, <laughs> what's coming down the pipe? But okay. So then one signal, is this one signal for you then also that um, rates may start to come down? The unemployment uh, rate in the US went up to 3.9%. And I think, I, I can't remember if it was from you or where I read this, that every time there's been about a half a point move in unemployment up from the bottom, from that cycle bottom, typically the 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 fed starts to cut rates or ease um and i think the bottom of for unemployment was 3.4% or so i think you're referencing that so now that it's at 3.9 is that just a signpost for you that ah it looks like maybe rates might be coming down shortly is that still something that you look at as a valid kind of indicator yeah. So the way I phrased it was that historically, um, if you get a 50 basis point rise in unemployment, uh, it normally leads to a recession. Uh, it doesn't just stop there. You don't just kind of go back up 50 basis points and then kind of normalize flat. Usually unemployment mm -hmm. keeps going up. Um, and that's you know by, by all accounts a recession. Uh, and so, of course, in a recession, normally you do get Fed easing. Um, now, it doesn't necessarily happen right away. It's not like as soon as you cross 50 basis points, uh, you're in a recession right away, the Fed's cutting right away. Uh, but it's just historically, that move has not happened without that over the coming quarters continuing into a recession. Uh, now, I was hesitant to say at this time that some of those rules like that um, are potentially a little looser in this environment because um, you know we've never had a kind of this divergence between fiscal policy and monetary policy before. Uh, we've never kind of had such a big shock to the economy as COVID, um, and and we never had this much kind of so many people just left the labor force permanently after that, and so we have, we have tighter labor force than normal. So you know, if there's any environment where some of these rules would be broken, like yeah, yield, curve, yield yeah. curve inversion, or but it's you know I'm not saying that they're going to be broken, but I'm kind of like I'm I'm observing things and saying this is normally not good, but you know. Um, it's, you know, we'll see what happens. I, yeah. I think, you know, I think that we've likely seen the top in interest rates. Um, uh, I think that they, you know, if you do start to get softer economy, they could pull them down. But I, I've been trying to analyze this differently. So everyone's kind of thinking very Boolean, like recession or no recession. Uh, whereas in many ways, this looks more like an emerging market environment. Um, and in emerging market recessions, normally nominal numbers are still shockingly big. Whereas real numbers could be str struggling, and mm -hmm. you get bigger than normal divergence between sectors. Like if you're an exporter in Turkey, you know you're probably doing okay because your expenses are domestic currency, 
and you're earning foreign hard currency in many cases and whereas a turkish bank could be absolutely struggling right so it's it's like in in inflationary environments in emerging market recessions you can get bigger divergences between sectors and one way to think of it is just with it with an unusually large divergence between fiscal policy and monetary policy it would not be surprising for in the US or certain other developed countries to have bigger than normal divergences between sectors like if you're in an industry um, sensitive sector that could look more outright recessionary uh, by many metrics you know like the US commercial real estate's already in a recession um, banks are kind of in a recession unprofitable techs kind of in a recession uh, venture capitals kind of in a recession uh, whereas like restaurants are not in a recession travels not in a recession um, you know, like plumbers are not in a recession. It's just very kind of like it's sector by sector specific, and that's makes sense in an environment where there's such divergence. And then, do you think this current decade is still similar? I, th- I think you've referenced it several times that it's similar to maybe perhaps the 1940s, where inflation kind of you know <laughs> rips higher, comes down to a relatively low amount for some brief amount of time rips higher again comes down and at the end of the decade you know you've just had this choppy inflation whereas in the 2010s we just kind of had this like steady run whereas in this decade it's just more wild up and down do you still feel the 1940s is a similar comparison to what we might be going through right now yeah i think so and it, it's partially that reason but it's partially other reasons so uh, you know the, the 40s and the 70s are often used for inflation comparisons most people think of the 70s and both of them had those waves. They both had like three waves of inflation. Um, so that wasn't unique to the 40s. Um, but the part that I emphasize the most in the 40s is that it was fiscal driven inflation. So in the 70s, although there was some component of it was fiscal, you know, there was you know, in the late 60s, you had the guns and butter program, you had, you know, basically great society and war in Vietnam. Uh, these were adding to the deficit. But if you look at the you know the amount of money that was created from bank loans it was bigger than the fiscal deficits basically the, the baby boomers were entering their home home uh, formation years um you know they were starting being born in the late 40s and so by the time they entered the 70s uh basically they're in they're in household formation and so you had um, a big uptick in bank lending uh credit formation and that was all else being equal inflationary especially then when you add in constraints like oil oil crises and things like that so combination of uh, excess lending credit formation with real world constraints the 40s were different in the sense that it wasn't because of excessive bank lending um it was because of just a very large fiscal deficits uh, that at some points were monetized and some points were not. But basically, a lot of the new money creation was from these very large fiscal deficits. And so ever since we've kind of entered the 2020s, we've been in that similar type of environment where most of the money creation we've seen is is not because banks are lending to an excessive degree. It's been very normal. Uh, Instead, it's mostly been very large monetized fiscal deficits. And the first wave of that was stimulus. And now the second wave of it is is interest expense. And that's also a, a similarity that the 40s had was public debt to GDP was very high. It was well over 100%. Whereas in the 70s, uh, the public uh, debt levels were very low. You got down to like, say, 30% debt to GDP in the United States. And so the challenge is that as you get higher and higher public debt, interest rates become a less effective tool for slowing down the economy because you know if you have low debt and a lot of bank lending and you raise rates a lot you slow down bank lending more than you blow out your deficit you know a little bit of both happens mm-hmm. but the lever is bigger on the on the reduction of, of private credit whereas if you have like average or sluggish bank lending and you have very large public debts and you dramatically raise interest rates uh, you do, you know, slow down bank lending, which wasn't that significant to begin with, but then you also are now pouring out very large deficits into the economy, and someone's on the receiving side of those deficits. And while they might not have a velocity of stimulus checks, they have a non-zero propensity to spend. You know, some of that, some of that money is just, you know, if you just if you give a, a billionaire more money, they're probably not going to spend it. But if you give a lot of upper middle class retirees more interest expense from their, you know, their money markets, um, and they've they've got a locked in fixed rate mortgage, um, higher interest rates basically stimulate them. It gives them more spending power, and that's you know that's one example of many. But basically, when you look at all this interest expense from the U.S. federal government, there are entities on the receiving side of that, and and some of them do spend. 
just wonder where this then goes with like M2, because it seems like I've, I've kind of recently just been sharing with people that, hey, you have to outpace M2 growth, whether it's in Canada or the US, whatever M2 is going on with M2 and whatever the growth rate of that is. And I know you referenced this kind of concept in your book as well, in some great detail that you have to outpace this. Otherwise, you're kind of finding falling behind financially through no fault of your own. And if you don't pay attention to, to that, you're, you know, you, you might not realize why it's difficult to make ends meet. Um, in the kind of environment that you are suggesting here, where high rates kind of have these high deficits and they kind of flushes some money into the economy because some people are on the receiving end of some of those interest payments, it, it seems to me that M2 is going to continue to grow at a faster and faster pace. Is that just... Is, is that just like an emotional response to what I'm seeing? I don't have the math behind it. It just seems like M2 never really slows down a lot. And then hearing about fiscal dominance, the way you're describing it, I guess I'm trying to figure out how does M2 slow down? It seems like we're just on this path where M2 continues to grow faster. So I do what expect it, that. Yeah. So I expect it on average to continue to grow pretty quickly. Now in, in, in these past 18 months or so, we are growing pretty slowly. Uh, and even for a period of time, we're reducing, not really anymore, but yeah. mm -hmm. for a period of time, you're reducing. And that's because the Fed's QT, uh, especially when they do, when they basically are <laughs> affecting non-banks, uh, that can reduce the money supply around the margins. Um, and so there was some destruction of money. And also, they did slow down the rate of, of bank loan creation. So we kind of flatlined in terms of US aggregate bank loan creation. So you kind of either destroyed money or slow down money with those levers while the fiscal side was still adding to money. So I think temporarily, uh, you can you can pretty much do anything temporarily. Um, so you had this 40% surge in money supply. And then since then, they've been kind of trying to get it back down to the, the prior trend line. Uh, I think basically once we get to that point we talked about before where the reverse repo facility runs out, and they're forced to go back to a period of kind of. Lynn, gradual... do you need to stop? Do you need a glass of water or anything? Uh, no, I'm fine. You okay? Uh, You're okay. Yes, okay. Yes. Okay. Good. 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 Uh, once they go back to a period of gradual balance sheet expansion, um, I think that's when you have a period of kind of money supply reaccelerate uh, back towards or slightly above its its normal baseline trend. Um, and I've also been looking at another metric, which is similar to M2, but basically I look at bank deposits plus currency and circulation plus money markets, uh, which is a, a similar but slightly different metric. And you'll okay. generally see that that has not slowed down to the degree that M2 has. Um, because for all intents and purposes, people treat their money markets like cash, um, even though it can consist of T-bills and commercial papers and reverse repo and all these kind of wonky things. It's for all intents and purposes money. A T-bill mm -hmm. is in many ways money, uh, even though it's debt. Because um, I mean, even a dollar bill is a liability of the Fed. It's a type of debt in, in a sense. But basically, T bills are money like in a closer proximity than, say, stocks or long duration bonds are. And so things like money markets or the, the um, assets inside of money markets uh, can be very money like. And so, in that sense, money supply is still growing pretty substantially. If you get a lot of T bill issuance and a lot of money, money market usage, um, the overall kind of quote unquote real M2 is actually probably a little bit higher than what we see looking at the official M2 metric. And so while you can slow down it for a period of time, I do think it's likely to accelerate. And like you said, you generally want to keep up with uh, broad money supply or you know different metrics of broad money supply, or at the very least, keep up on a per capita basis. So if money supply is growing by 7% a year, population is growing by 1% a year, you should at least be trying to keep up by 6% per year. Um, got it. Never which, thought about is, it like that. Yeah. Yeah. Got yeah. It. That way, basically that way you're at least getting your share. Your share is not being yeah. Uh, yeah. diminished. What a world. We have to keep track of how much new dollars come into existence just to not fall behind. So, uh, but, uh, but I think that's the challenge. That's why inflationary policy works for policymakers because the average person, um, doesn't look at these things. And even if they could, it's hard to keep up with these things, right? It's hard. Yeah. If money supply is going up by 7% a year and population is growing, you're saying, okay, I want to, I want to, I want my wages and I want my asset price and stuff to not be diluted. Uh, it's, it's a pretty high hurdle to meet that. And then when you go to developing countries, like I go to Egypt every year, they've got 20% money supply growth. So if you're, if you're not, aggressively keeping your wages going up, or if you're a small business, 
aggressively raising your prices or if you're a landlord not aggressively raising your rent you're you're getting diluted on your income income streams your you know the property the the success of your investments you're getting diluted by entities that are closer to the source of money creation I want to just switch briefly now just to your book, uh, Broken Money. At the beginning of the book, you do this wonderful job of breaking down a credit-based system and a commodity-based system in those first few, I think it's like several chapters. And it was really eye-opening to me because it reminded me as a kid when I went to Croatia all the time in Europe and my family was in a village there. And you just, just reading your pages made me realize what I had witnessed all those years in this small village, they would help each other. So if somebody, if it was time for a harvest or if it was time to take up, you know, the cattle to pasture, there was this kind of credit based back and forth system that was operating in this small village. It was kind of like, oh, like we helped harvest the potatoes, you know, or so, uh, you know, they're likely going to help us harvest the wheat next, you know, the next time we're harvesting the wheat. There was just this kind of implied, you know, favors going back and forth in a credit-based system. It was almost unspoken. But one uh, one day, my aunt took a, a like a big bowl to sell to the market, which was a few villages down where they would have this market once a month. And I walked with her as a young kid. And it was this you know, huge bull she was selling. And because she was in the market outside her village, there wasn't, there wasn't this back and forth, like credit-based system because these people that were buying the bull from her were from like another village far away. So there they settled like as a spot price. And like she sold, I'll never forget. She sold the bull. I know this is a crazy story, Lynn, but this is what you're. No, I, I, lo- I, I love this, this example because it's a, it's a tangible model. Yeah. Like this, this, I, like, yeah. I'm like reading your pages. I'm like, holy shit. Like yeah. I experienced this in person. And then at the market, I'll never forget. She sold the bull. She got a small calf in exchange for the bull. And the rest she got as dinars, the the currency that was in use at the time. It wasn't a great currency. They had to use it. They were locked into to the dinars, but they settled as a spot price right there because there was no way she was going to help these people from a few villages down, like harvest their potatoes. So I just thought that was just so amazing that the way your book kind of broke it down is completely accurate. Like I lived that. And, you know, it just kind of really drove home to me the difference between a credit-based system and like a commodity-based system um, for for money. And can you maybe for someone who hasn't heard that, because I know I try to articulate some of these things to people who are kind of born in Canada and share these concepts. Could you just outline what a credit credit based system and, and a commodity based system? And you may and before you do, I guess you made me also take the next step further. I'm like, holy crap, like if you were to represent the favors that were going back and forth between those people in that village, my family and other families, and you were to represent those in little credit receipts, those would be what we call dollars today. And then if someone on the side was artificially creating more de- uh credit receipts, they would dilute the favors that were going back and forth if they put those credit receipts into the system, right? Because it could kind of work, a credit-based system, as long as no one's like, you're in the village and no one's diluting it unintentionally. Um, but if someone was diluting those favors back and forth, the whole kind of system breaks, which is at a bigger scale, I know what we kind of have today. So you just really helped form some of these thoughts that I had experienced as a younger person um, in Croatia with my aunt there through your book. So thank you for that, Lynn. Um, yeah, so I yeah, so I appreciate that example. That it's great to hear that because it's not you know it's 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 what happened in history, yeah. but it, it's also what happened in pretty local modern times, just outside. Well, of that was the nineteen eighty. What I described yeah. was the nineteen eighties. Yeah, it's pretty recent. We have a similar phenomenon here with the Amish. Uh, it's not that far from where I am. The, the Amish, uh, they live a, a more rural lifestyle, uh, kind of purposely without a, a lot of modern things and they'll, they'll do for example a barn raising they'll all get together and build someone's barn and you know basically the the the, the cost for that is the next time when someone else needs a barn built that guy's yes. got to go and help help him build a barn too and you just you basically you over time you build a little bit of everyone's barn and it's just it's this ongoing even yeah. yeah people know each other and they keep track of who's you know holding their weight and who's not and who's who can be given credit and who's you know not um and the reason I covered that in the book, so basically to go over the two types, when we think about, we want to solve the double coincidence of wants, right? Like if I, you know, whether it's a uh, hunter-gatherer economy, like, you know, I have spears and you have furs, or it's it's a, you know, kind of more rural kind of, you know, like Amish or 1980s Croatia, you know, whatever the case may be, like a more town-based uh, kind of smaller environment. 
you know, if you want to solve the double quintessence of wants, you want to trade a bull for a calf or spears for furs. The challenge is that you have to find someone that specifically has excess of what you want. They're selling what you want, and you have to be selling something specifically that they want. Uh, and so it's it's there's more trades that fail. It's hard to find you know these these like uh, coincidental overlapping. Uh, excesses and deficits, uh, and so, there's, but there's really two ways to make that easier to do. One is uh, you can defer through time, which is credit. Basically, you say, look, I mean, if you help me come build my barn, this I, I won't give anything now, but when you need a barn built next season, I'll I'll chip in there too. Uh, and so it's that same kind. It's like that time-based deferment. You know, maybe you don't have a ton of excess apples that you can give the person all. You know, the appropriate number of apples for his day of labor. But instead, it's just okay. That's Fred down the street, and Fred's going to help me build a barn next season or whenever I need a barn built. Um, or you know, you know, they helped. You know, I, I sold apples here, but then they owe me a day of labor or another time. Right. So that's deferment through time, which is credit. Uh, and the other one is, is as you said, if you don't know the person, uh, you don't might never see them again. Uh, you instead settle on the spot, and that's where you generally need a more liquid unit of account, something that's that's you know a good store of value. It's portable, it's divisible, it's recombinable. Uh, it's you know it, it has a lot of value density, um, and that's how we you know shells or um, cocoa and eventually gold and silver, uh, basically those units that help kind of um, lubricate trade. And I just felt like, especially in the in the kind of the sound money um, like dialogue, not a lot of focus is put on that early credit environment. Uh, and even in modern just textbooks, they often say, "Okay, well, you know, you would have barter, but then you have this instead." And they often leave out that a part of making barter work is that time deferment, that credit, mm-hmm. uh, because that that's what makes barter actually kind of effective. Uh, and then. The reason I covered that is one is I wanted to bring that back into the discussion uh, to get away from just the strict idea of, of, you know, the only thing is money is commodities. There, there are other types of money. But then I also wanted to be critical of some of the people that are, I think, overly optimistic on a credit-based system because they act as though, in many cases, some of the people I would critique is they, they basically say, you don't even need commodity money at all. You can just defer these claims around, and it's like, well, sure, until your family member has to go two towns over, and then your system breaks down. It's 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 it, there's a lot of a lot has to be going right for that little credit system to work, and there's there's a, a countless reasons why it wouldn't. Basically, travel or you know, other reasons why you just can't use credit all the time. Uh, you eventually need kind of final settlement savings, um, portability from community community of, mm-hmm. of value. And so I, I cover that in the book to show that there are really kind of two roots of what money is, and they're both based on the two primary ways of solving the double coincidence of wants. I, yeah, I appreciate it. I think you do a, a great job. I think it helped, the way you break it down in the book helps you recognize the current problems in today's world, because I don't think you can appreciate what some of the solutions might be with fu- without fully understanding where some of the gaps in today's system might exist. And the way you broke that down in the few, first few chapters really, to me, does a good job of helping understand where the current system is broken. And then you can come to appreciate what might be required to solve that. And I think when you're born in a system where it's just credit-based money from birth, if you're born in Canada or the US and it kind of works kind of well, you don't have the opposite to compare it against. So you can't really articulate or understand what might be better or could be better, how it could be better. So I think you do a great job in the book of just kind of breaking that out really nicely. I just wanted your thoughts on this. On page 269 of your book, you have this passage from, it's from, you know, I don't know how many years ago in Greece where they were just talking about a debt jubilee and the requirement for debt jubilee. Actually, in that chapter, you talk about debt jubilees with a few different examples and just how there's ultimately throughout history, there is some record of this being necessary that eventually... Debts need to be forgiven. Otherwise, the weight of these debts just builds up too big and the kind of system breaks down. We're in a current system that doesn't seem to have a debt jubilee unless you maybe inflate away the debts. I guess, where do you think we're headed? Like, Are we headed towards some type of forced debt jubilee on the current path we're in? And how would that look? 
So I think that's where the developed world's headed, and I think it's probably through inflation. Um, basically, you can have a debt jubilee either nominally or through uh, currency debasement. Uh, and the way the current system is structured, it's very hard to do it nominally because you basically bankrupt the whole banking system. Uh, and so generally, it's it's you know like how did we get out of the 1940s, like war debts, for example? The answer was basically you inflated them away, right? So on one hand, you got back to a period of pretty strong, real growth. Uh, and some degree of austerity, but it's not like they paid down that debt in real terms. Uh, instead, there was a significant part of inflation that was involved. Basically, if you loan money to an entity that is over leveraged and uh, like unable to pay it back realistically, you're going to lose purchasing power. And it just that at that point is is determined how. If it's a private sector lender that can't print their own money. They're probably going to default in some way, and you're going to, you know, either either have to turn your debt into equity or otherwise get restructured and and take a haircut on your value. Or if it's a sovereign entity that can print its own money, then you're still probably going to lose purchasing power. But instead of a default or restructuring, you're probably just going to get the same number of units back as you're expecting, but those units buy you know, two thirds of what they could buy before or half of what they could buy before, depending on the duration of the the debt we're talking about here. And so, you know, I would consider what we saw in the 1940s, uh, you know, the 30s and 40s, a type of debt jubilee, basically any sort of um, gold peg break is a type of debt jubilee in some way. Uh, anytime there's a big expansion in the money supply compared to the existing debt levels is basically a type of debt jubilee. The, the default on the Bretton Woods system and the inflation that came in the 1970s is also a type of debt jubilee. Uh, and I think we're probably getting close to something now. And of course, it's it, it can be destructive when it happens on such a big scale. You know, when you have a, a country like the United States with 330 million people, uh, that also then their their monetary policy affects the rest of the world too. When an entity like that go, goes through a debt jubilee, that's different than like your local kingdom, you know, the, the king proclaiming that like, you know, all consumer <laughs> debts uh, past seven years old are null and void now, right? That's a... That's a local, more manageable type of debt jubilee compared to these other ones we're having now. And going back to your prior point, the interesting thing about those kind of local credit-based monies is that they're actually it's it's hard money in a way because no one is diluting the favors, right? It's like everybody because their memories are involved. Some people might try to, but you're right. There's units of work that you're kind of remembered in your head on what's owed back to you. Yeah. Yeah. Occasionally there's a default, but, uh, you know, (laughs) but, but aside, you know, but, you know, defaults happen in hard money environments. Basically, the the money itself's not being aggressively diluted. Um, And and like you said, imagine someone could imagine if someone could kind of slip more favors in there uh, and basically have more favors owed to them that for work they never did, right? That would, that'd be cheating. Uh, and yet, that's exactly what we see in the current system, which is that as you as you get kind of monetized fiscal spending, um, or you get kind of persistent periods of negative real rates, you know, there's people on the winning side of that, and there's people on the losing side of that. And basically, the people that are on the winning side of that, especially if they're near the source of money creation itself, rather than just kind of outside taking advantage of it, but if they're in some way responsible for it, they're kind of gradually rug pulling. And diluting everyone else and trying to suck some value out of that that system, and that's the big challenge in debt jubilees. Is that of course everyone's going to try to get a bigger share than they're owed, right? Everyone wants a piece that's you know oversized, and if you're if you're in a position of power, you can you can use that to your advantage. And so it's it's just, it can be very destructive when when these currency problems happen. Um, I love the way in the book you break down kind of like the older you know, money systems that have been used. Then you talk about the current system in great depth and your explanations of the Federal Reserve were really helpful to me. I kind of read a lot of different books on the Federal Reserve, but there was just a whole bunch of uh, points in there that you do to me a great job of making it really uh, self-evident on what you know, what the Federal Reserve is doing and their kind of role in the current system. And then you kind of get into, you know, new forms of money and specifically Bitcoin. When you um, introduce Bitcoin in the book, did anything new come to mind that you began to appreciate Bitcoin in a different light? Or was it just the framework you discuss it, like an honest ledger? Or, you know, for someone who's who hasn't given money as much thought as you have, how how would you begin to articulate Bitcoin to them? What framework do you like to start with um, when you're trying to explain money and Bitcoin? So I think, uh, you know, basically before the, the book came together, 
um, I was resistant writing a book because it can be very time consuming. It's just not something that is usually a high ROI thing to be doing. Um, but once a couple key themes came together, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so now it's like, now it's time to write the book. Um, you know, it's just, it's time to put this together. And there were a couple of those in particular. One was that I wanted to talk about. We just talked about the, the commodity versus credit money and how to kind of rec reconcile those by realizing that they're all types of ledgers. And it just depends on what ledger you're using. Is it your local like memory-based community ledger? Village, la yeah, village is, ledger, yeah. yeah. Is it, yeah, is it your informal <laughs> village, your, free, your your neighbor village ledger? Is it, are you using a commodity as a ledger? Basically, you know, there's a, cer a certain rate that you can make new gold coins. It's hard to cheat the system. And if you have a share of gold in the community, you're you're kind of holding your spot on a ledger in, in a way of speaking. Um, or is it like a, a large centralized administrative ledger? Is it like the temples of Babylon or on their clay tablets? Or is it a, a, a central bank, right? So that's one thing I wanted to kind of explore those two concepts and show that they're really kind of two sides of the same coin in a way. Um, the other one that I want to em emphasize was the, uh, the role of the telegraph in changing our money system more than we think, which is the fact that if prior to that, transactions and settlements could move at roughly the same sp uh, speed, right? So everything, everything, all information still moved at the speed of matter for the most part. Uh, whereas with the telegraph, we could now send information around globally uh, roughly at the speed of light, uh, in pretty high volumes, and yet any sort of physical settlement of something like gold was now kind of just—it's it's still material, it's still very slow, especially when you consider verification uh, of the of, and the auditing of the gold itself. And so, that kind of opened up the need for a lot of arbitrage. There has to be some sort of abstraction, some sort of ledger, some sort of credit that's kind of facilitating that gap. That we're relying on, you know, by the time we, we get a transaction that we know is, you know, this this piece of paper I'm given or this kind of bank deposit I'm given is in theory redeemable for gold. But it's like, if I don't plan on doing it anytime soon, I'm kind of relying on a, this big chain of credit. And so I wanted to kind of focus on how that expanding speed gap opened up so much arbitrage for banks and central banks and governments uh, that is more than we think. Um, and then the, the third one uh, was the third theme was basically how the the kind of the end state of that is how we have 160 different currency bubbles, right? So Egypt has its own little. It's like a casino chip, right? If, you know, <laughs> like if if you have an Egyptian pound, it's really a casino chip in the sense that anywhere outside of Egypt, it's like what do you do with this thing? It's not really money anymore. It's only money in its casino in in the the kind of enforced monopoly that it has. But then the same thing's true for Norway. Norway is a wealthy country. But their currency is still basically useless outside of Norway. If I have if I have Norwegian currency in New Jersey, United States, like it's actually kind of hard to find a way to get this off my hand. It's not a very saleable good. Um, I'm either going to have trouble getting it to some, someone to take it at all, or it's going to be at a significant discount uh, because it's just it's it's too far outside of its own jurisdiction. And they're able to maintain these monopolies in large part because of that that speed mismatch. So basically the only two ways to get money in or out of a country historically were ports of entry. So bring your cash or gold through an airport, which is obviously highly restricted, usually like $10,000 or less. Um, and then, or bank wires, uh, including FinTech on top of bank wires, but ultimately it's, you know, banks sending money in or out of the country, which of course only happens uh, at the pleasure of the Regulators basically they can control what money comes in and out, what units someone can get. You know, if I if I am a Egyptian and I do work for a foreigner and they want to pay me in dollars, it's kind of up to my banking system and my government whether that hits my account in oh, dollars yeah, or disaster. Yeah. Egyptian pounds. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, like I know a videographer in Egypt, he does work for foreign um, uh, buyers. And he charges in dollars, like he sets his prices in dollars. Um, and they, you know, if they if they have to film something, like a business I work with wanted to film something me while I, while I'm in Egypt, so they hired him. They they he said he charges in dollars and hits his bank account in Egyptian pounds. And then he's got to figure out what he's going to do with his pounds now. He's not going to just hold Egyptian pounds because they're you know inflating away. Um, and what's interesting is that for the first time. Bitcoin kind of solves these last two problems, which is it's it's the first credible way to send value long distances without relying on credit. You know, all you're relying on is the ongoing functioning of a decentralized network. 
um, you know, so you're all you're all you're relying on is they're not being a 51% attack to reverse your transaction, which is different than credit. Um, so you're sending a, a largely irreversible bare asset to someone uh, at roughly the speed of light, especially if you're using something like the lightning work but even if using the base layer it's you know half an hour for a reasonably settled transaction um and also you have infinite value density so for example unlike uh, an airport like a, with an airport with cash or gold you know with bitcoin you could memorize 12 words and bring a billion dollars through an airport if you had it right there's just infinite infinite um value density that can go so in beautiful. and out of countries it's so beautiful yeah yeah it just yeah, yeah it just bre- it breaks that whole thing wide open and then and secondly if i want to pay a videographer in egypt he can send me a QR code or a string of numbers, and I can pay him in whatever he wants. It could be Bitcoin, it could be dollar stable coins, you know, whatever he wants with, with reasonable privacy. Yeah, yeah, with reasonable privacy, and it depends. And there's ways to improve that over time, but you know, he can get some degree of of just direct to him that goes around his local banking system. Um, the same thing is true. Like if there's a, a Norwegian graph designer and she, she charges whatever she wants, she's okay. I want stable coins. I want Bitcoins. Uh, and instead of going through like their local official exchange rate, um, it can go at the, the real kind of the street exchange rate. Like it can, it can get directly to her and then she can either, in some cases, depending on where she is, just spend that directly. She could spend with Bitcoin or spend with stable coins. Or if she does convert to the local currency, She's now basically converting on the the street rate, which is better for her to to get back into the local currency. And so, these kind of 160 different currency bubbles are every one of them has their gates down now. They're all starting to get cracked open. And of course, this takes time because only in the past five years has any of this been liquid, right? So, I mean, stable coins were tiny until this last cycle. Bitcoin was fairly small to the last like two cycles, and until it gets kind of bigger, less volatile, just more liquid overall, more awareness, more comfort with how it works. You know, it's kind of a limited at the current time, but the more Bitcoin communities pop up, the more people use stable coins, whatever, whatever's working for them, whatever the market forces kind of end up wanting. There's there's pros and cons to both, obviously. Um, that just starts cracking this like artificial framework we've had for the past, you know, century and a half, really. Um, and I don't think that I don't think that the market understands that it, how big that can be yet. Like that's, it can change macro, it can change money. It has huge implications as long as just a couple things are true. As long as the Bitcoin network remains decentralized, secure, uh, and as long as it, it, its overall adoption and liquidity keeps improving because it is solving a problem. Um, and if as if that happens, then that I think just increasingly chips away at these currency bubbles we have. Maybe then the right way to look at history is that gold and silver acted as hard money on and off, but for you know large periods of time on as hard money um, throughout history. And then technology changed, as you're saying, with the telegraph, where the speed, and you mentioned this several times, the speed of transmission versus settlement is kind of been disjointed. And the money didn't match that. And it opened up this arbitrage opportunity for the banking system for, let's say, the last hundred or you know even more years. Um, but now that gap might be closing again because of the emergence of Bitcoin. And it introduces a rather interesting inflection point in humanity to me because it really can change economics and the way people think about saving, the way people think about investing their money. Because if you do have a hard money again that really does serve the world in a functional way... Um, then I'm only going to give up that money or invest in projects or businesses that really have a good return. You know, whereas in the past, in the last, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, credit's been cheap, interest rates have been low. So you get a lot of kind of disjointedness in the economy with a lot of malinvestment and things that shouldn't be monetized. And and we could be looking at a really interesting future if this evolves the way that we think it will. I don't know if that's the next, you know, short few years or <coughs> several decades, but it does present a lot of, to me, exciting opportunities for for everyone. Um, so I get all crazy excited about it, Lynn. So I, yeah, I love I the way you... Yeah, I think it's fascinating how it solves kind of multiple problems simultaneously. So the one that it solves, I think, most universally is the store value problem. Because wherever you go in the world, people are monetizing other things because they don't want to hold just money, uh, You know, especially in this kind of last 15 years of, of zero interest rate policy. Um, and 
you know, so they say, okay, well, I want to buy this really expensive real estate instead. I want to buy this really expensive equities instead. And of course, there are places for all of those. I mean, I, I have real estate and I have equities. Um, but it's like in Egypt, for example, people will buy an, an a, another home and it's just sitting there empty because they're like, well, I'm not going to like invest in the local stock exchange because it's not as reliable as like the U.S. market, and I'm not going to hold cash or bonds. So I guess it's it's real estate. You know, it's either real estate, gold coins, or physical cash dollars they got in the gray market. That's kind of their it's that's like their options. Um and and so it's just it's and in the United States, we just shovel money into our four one Ks and just monetize the S P five hundred. Um mm-hmm, yeah. and that that has some distortion effects on on business formation and things like that. Um and in, in some countries it's you know it's it's a lot of it's you get real estate bubbles because of that. People say, Well, you know, I want to hold something that's outside of, of this jurisdiction or I want to hold that and you kind of drive up certain prices beyond what they should be in a in a healthier environment. And and those are just kind of they they distort things. Um and then the other problem that Bitcoin solve for some people that those of us in the in the West generally are less aware of is the payments issue. So, for example, um, there's something like 40 currencies in Africa. Um, there's like 30 currencies in Latin America, um, and it's it can be non-trivial. For example, to send money from Nigeria to Kenya, right? Or the or the cost to do so end up being just non non-trivial. Uh, and that should be it's 2023. That should be trivial. Um, and the interesting thing about things like Bitcoin is that it, it just can bridge that gap. So like apps can work with each other as long as they have internet connection and just have this kind of shared open source way of communicating with each other uh, in a way that's just not really working for a lot of people right now. So, you know, those of us in the United States or Canada or Europe, we generally don't have that many payment frictions on a regular basis. Sometimes if we send an international wire, we'll, we'll be reminded how antiquated some of this is. But other than that, we generally don't go around every day thinking, you know, uh, like if only I had better payments. Um, only around the margins do we see it. But in a lot of countries, it's it, it's non-trivial. And then especially when you do think of this global scale, when you think of global remittances, when you think of like apps and money systems being able to communicate with each other across borders. Um, I think all of that can get way better. And I think a really good analogy is email. So like every every like webmail client can talk to other webmail clients because they're using the same open source underlying protocols. They don't have to make like Yahoo and Gmail don't have to get together and make sure that their systems are compatible. They just have to make sure that their systems are compatible with the underlying open source. And so for, when you have open source you know, Bitcoin base layer, Lightning, whatever other layers could exist, any entity that starts interfacing with those um, systems now starts interfacing with every other kind of environment, money ecosystem in the world that is also tied into that system. And so, for example, Cash App uh, is, you know, it's got a very large, you know, set of users. And by incorporating into the Bitcoin and Lightning network, they start connecting to, you know, other ecosystems around the world without even necessarily knowing it. Uh, now there still can be frictions on that in terms of like KYC AML and and kind of these artificial restrictions to start go on top of that. Um, but the point is, I think that basically having these these open source layers that can, that can connect different monetary ecosystems together and and bypass their artificial kind of firewalls, uh, I think changes a lot and mostly for the better. Yeah, and you might not know this. There's a there's a company up here called Bull Bitcoin in based out of Canada, where for a thousand dollars or less, you can do non KYC Bitcoin purchases by just going to one of the uh, a Canada post office. You walk in with a QR code, and if you have five hundred dollars in cash, you can you know f- uh, put it you know give them the QR code. They scan it. You hand over the five hundred dollars. I think the fee is like three bucks. And it'll fund your your account that you can then go buy Bitcoin in a non KYC fashion. Like to me, that's just first of all, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm hesitating if I even should have shared that because I don't want the government to shut that down. <laughs> but but that exists, and I think it's really kind of something that Bitcoin is bringing to the market that I can't even believe exists in you know right now. Like it should exist, and it's a really great thing that does exist. Um, and in Canada also. You know, we're right next to the U.S. and Canada's, you know, considered a developed nation, part of the G7. But when Bitcoin recently hit half of its recent all-time high, so when I think it hit about thirty-five thousand dollars U.S. in the last week or two weeks or so, 
It was a big realization for people here who had been Bitcoin for a little bit, because when they saw their Canadian dollar balance of Bitcoin at half of the all-time high, they just doubled it in their minds and thought, oh, if Bitcoin ever goes back to the all-time high in US dollars, I'm actually well beyond that in Canadian dollars. And that was the first realization to many people like, well, what's going on with the Canadian dollar? And it started a whole discussion in the office here like, hey, what the heck is happening with the Canadian dollar? And this is in some currency that's, you know, it's not the American dollar, but the Canadian dollar is considered a fairly decent store of value. So I really appreciate that Bitcoin's kind of opening up those discussions for people as well. I want to honor your time, but I want to get one more question on time management in there. Is, is that okay? Do we have a couple more minutes? Sure. Yeah. yeah okay. Happy to. Happy um, to. Okay. Thank you. Anthony on our team has I made me ask you this question. So can you please ask Lynn, how does she get so much done? Do you have like a time management when you're researching? for your, you know, the newsletters that you're putting out or for the book, do you have like a time management strategy just for the day or the week that you're consciously kind of planning around that you could share with us? Or is it just, you know, an ad hoc system that you, when you get time, you work, or are you very kind of honed in on how you're spending your time every day? So for me, it's very ad hoc and very simple. Um, so there's nothing complex about it, but there are a couple tangible things that I do. Uh, that might have been not work for other people, but they they just work for me. So it's basically every day I have a very short list of things I want to get done. And if I, you know, if there's five things and I hit four of them and I do that every day for, you know, 365 days a year, or, you know, 300 plus working days a year, uh, that adds up to like, you know, a thousand things I did that year. Right. And it could be simple, like, okay, clear out the email backlog or uh, write the first draft of this article or this premium report or uh, write the draft of this chapter, right? So it's just like I have a literally like a, you could put it on like a on a post-it note. Just like do these five things, and you know if I hit four of them, I'm like okay, it was a pretty good day. Um, so just micro lists. The other one is that uh, with my writing content, um, at any given time, I'm working on them simultaneously. So rather than just working on one and getting that done, and then going on to the next one, I usually have a couple things that are all like in the oven to different degrees of readiness. Uh, and the reason for that is so that I never run into writer's block or get stuck. There are sometimes that there's a challenging article, or maybe it's a boring article, or maybe there's something I have to research and I just don't feel like it right now. And it's just, it's not progressing. It's not, it's the quality or, or, or the time is taking is just not up to what I'm liking. Uh, I'll just kind of leave that aside and just say, well, I'm gonna leave this draft here the next month and I'll be working on something else. And then one day something will click and I'll go back and be able to finish that article more quickly. Something, something re-sparked my interest in it, or uh, I just kind of had a shower thought and solved the, maybe I had a formatting problem and I went back and solved that. Uh, and so for one example is my, what is money article It was one of the longest articles I've ever written. <laughs> and it played a role in eventually the formation of the book, Broken Money. Uh, and that article probably took three months to write, not because I was actually working on it for three months, but because I started working on it it was just so long and I was trying to think of how to format this. And I just kind of, it felt, it started to feel like a grind. So I just kind of put it aside for like a month and just went back to other stuff like a newsletter or, you know, kind of other stuff I'm working on or clear out my other to-do lists. And then eventually just the formatting clicked for me and I came back and finished it more quickly. And so that kind of parallel um, work uh, is is um, I, I think a, a, at least for me personally a big part of how I how I churn so much out. And one point of validation is that there's an author named Brandon Sanderson. He writes like uh, fiction, like fantasy, and sometimes sci-fi. And he, I mean, he's no like his books sell extremely well. Um, like he's one of the best-selling authors in those genres. Uh, like up there with like. J.R. Martin kind of level, um, even though he's not really had these like cinematic works yet, but he's he's like his numbers are like that insane. Um, but he's actually even more known for the sheer number of books this guy puts out. You know, there's like some authors they like they got actually J.R. Martin. Like, yeah, everybody's waiting for like the next J.R. Martin book forever. Um, there's this other author, Patrick Rothfuss, and he's got this like two parts of a trilogy and people are like dying waiting for the, the third part and it's just not it's not happening uh whereas this uh brandon sanderson is an absolute machine 
in terms of pr- a prolificness, the sheer number of uh, like long books, like thousand page books combined with like 300 page books combined with. And if you look at his like website, he's got this like status bar and you'd be like, okay, this book 75% done. This other book is 40% done. This other book is 80% done. And so he's, cl- he seems to be using a similar strategy of parallel um, book creation. Interesting. Got it. Which is similar to how I do articles or book chapters and things like that. So that that there's, there does seem to be some validity to that approach, at least for for some people. Well, I would say you are prolific, Lynn. So thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you for the impact that you're having. I, I think I think I've heard Jeff Booth say this before. Like, just you know, one person can really have an impact on a lot of people. To me, you're one of those people. I'm a you know a happy subscriber to your premium newsletter. I love the content that you put out, the book that you're putting out. I've listened to so many of your podcasts and I always learn something from listening to you. So just thank you because the impact that you're having on you know me, then I go and talk to other people like you're probably having, there's orders of effect to this and you may be having an even, even larger impact you know, on all of us than you perhaps even know. So thank you for everything you're doing. I so with that, it. yeah, no problem. Can you talk to us just you know about ego death, what you're doing with ego death capital, and I think everyone everyone at this point probably knows the book, but if you don't, it's called Broken Money um, on Amazon. You can get uh, Lynn's book. Um, but yeah, can you talk about um, Ego Death Capital and your involvement there? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, but for a while, my, my primary work was research. So lindalden.com and as well as this book. Um, but I've been working with Jeff Booth and others on um, uh, venture opportunities in, in the Bitcoin space. And, you know, it touches on other areas as well, like, you know, stable value, for example. Um, but it, it, that's, you know, it, it's just kind of real, realizing that because of some of the things we talked about, we expect there to be a lot of kind of businesses, uh, you know, to, to be done, work to be done uh, in the years ahead uh, as liquidity gets better and as the UX gets better. And so um, we're, you know, we're, we're deploying capital in that space. So it's, it's, it kind of brings me back to my almost like, a, like I used to be an engineer. And even though I'm not an engineer anymore, um, I like the idea of contributing in some small way to build something, not just analyze things and not just trade things around but help uh, bring into existence something new, right? Whether it's capital or experience or um, help marketing for them, whatever the case may be, or if it's engineering as it used to be, uh, that's something I've been finding a lot of enjoyment in. Cool. And then um, your website to get on, because just your free newsletter is so valuable. So if you're listening to this and this is the kind of information that you're interested in, get on Lynn's free newsletter. um, And then the premium newsletter, you can subscribe to that off the website as well. Can you just remind me the URL for that website? Is it just Uh, lynnalden.com or is it lynnalden contact? uh, It's lynnalden.com. And uh, my Twitter is at lynnalden contact. Okay, Twitter, Lynn on Alden Contact. Awesome, Lynn. I mean, thank you for this. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed that chat with Lynn. You can find her on Twitter at Lynn Alden Contact. So that's at Lynn Alden Contact. You can get her free investing newsletter at lynnalden.com along with her premium newsletter there. The name of her book, which is available on Amazon, is Broken Money, Why Our Financial System is Failing Us and How We Can Make It Better. And if you're trying to figure out where to buy Bitcoin in Canada, we highly recommend Bull Bitcoin. And if you go to the URL rockstarbtc.ca and sign up for an account funded there, you will get $20 of free Bitcoin when you do it through rockstarbtc.ca. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.